Welcome back to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today we're joined by Sam Spinner to talk about Jewish primitivism. Listen in as we take a deep dive into primitivism in modern European culture, Jewish primitivism and its politics, and what it all means when we think about 20th century Jewish life and culture. Samuel Spinner is the Zelda and Meyer Tendetnik Assistant Professor of Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture at Johns Hopkins University. His book, Jewish Primitivism, which is the starting point for our conversation today, was published in 2021 by Stanford University Press. Spinner is also a co-editor of German Jewish Cultures, a book series published by Indiana University Press, and he serves as an editor of the Yiddish Studies Journal in Geveb. Jewish primitivism is a phenomenally exciting and interesting investigation of primitivism in modern Jewish literature, photography, and graphic art. Primitivism, the elevation and valorization of so-called primitive cultures, is an important movement in European art and culture in the 19th and 20th centuries, broadly speaking. And Spinner's book explores how primitivism manifested itself in modern Jewish culture specifically. I've linked to an excerpt from the book in the show notes, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation today. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I was really just so excited to see your book. I'm really glad we have a chance to talk about it and the big issues that I think that it engages with. Perhaps the best place to start is what is primitivism to begin with in the kind of the broader European cultural sphere? And then what is Jewish primitivism in particular that you're engaging with in the book? That's exactly the place to start, because before we get to Jewish primitivism, we have to know what primitivism is. First, I want to sort of foreground that what primitivism is and what Jewish primitivism is changes uh, throughout my book because it changes for the primary actors, the writers, the, the artists who are, who are producing it. It's a project rather than a set of defined features or styles or characteristics. But we'll talk, talk more about that in a bit. Primitivism, in a sort of very basic way, is the idea that when civilization didn't exist before civilization, when humanity was at its most, quote-unquote, primitive, things were better. Primitive is uh, a notion of identity, has a number of different origins, but really was catalyzed and most specifically defined in the period that gave rise to anthropology, the science of anthropology, the study of humans. And anthropologists were extremely interested in members of so-called primitive societies and primitive savages, as they understood them to be, who were essentially defined in opposition to what the scientists were. And what the scientists were was almost always white, European. And the colonial subjects who they were discovering were therefore in opposition, defined in opposition to them members of a society that was not civilized, members of society that needed to be brought into the civilized world. So they were primitive. What primitivism is, is the idea that this was good or had good things to offer. Not strictly a condescending stereotype or a racist stereotype, although it was both, 
But those stereotypes combined with the notion that there was something positive to be gotten out of it. Now, primitivism is not only something that arises in modernity. The founders of the School of the History of Ideas, George Boas and Arthur Lovejoy, historians at Johns Hopkins in the 20th century, started writing uh, what they thought would be a many-volume sort of overview of primitivism from antiquity to the present. They only ended up writing the, the first volume, but they made their point, which is that in almost every Western intellectual and artistic tradition that you look at, there's this idea that um, things were better before. And they were better before because they weren't corrupted by whatever is wrong with now. In the modern period, when this really sort of explodes and takes off and generates aesthetic primitivism, which is probably the most recognizable form of it that we see in uh, first and primarily in painting, the critique is of modernity, of modern Europe. And really, every element of it, modern society, the technological society, spirituality, thought, culture, the critique of primitivism could be and was directed at every element of this. Even though, as I said, it kind of gets its objects, the subjects of, of colonial expansion and domination from a sort of economic and political system, it really comes into and spreads through uh, European culture and society through art. And so most famously, you know, the first primitivist according to some of the genealogies of it, is the painter Paul Gauguin, the French painter who went to Tahiti in search of true art. And also, and this is important for understanding what primitivism can be, and often was for the people doing it, in search not only of true art, but a true sense of himself as an artist. And then the other sort of uh, major antecedent or starting point in the genealogy of primitivism as a modern European intellectual and artistic project would be Picasso, Pablo Picasso, who used as a sort of catalyst for his complete recalibration of how art works, and that would be through cubism, right? This like visual and epistemological deconstruction of what art does. How do you represent something? He used as one of his prompts African art and African art objects that he saw in a museum in Paris and that he began collecting for himself. So this is, you know, a very long story and a very broad story. And what's amazing is that into this story come Jewish writers and artists who say, yes, this idea of primitive culture and primitive identity is important, and we're going to use it as a critique of modernity. But the primitives are not colonial subjects you know, in the, in the South Seas or in Africa or wherever European empires were expanding, the primitives are Jews. So Jewish writers and artists begin looking at other Jews as sources for a critique of modernity on the basis of a notion of primitive identity. There's so much to delve into here, both to think about primitivism itself and also Jewish primitivism more specifically, you know, but what is the relationship then between primitivism, broadly speaking, and the European colonial project. I'm struck, for instance, thinking about the uh, the notion of the quote-unquote noble savage and the discourse of the Enlightenment and all sorts of different things. And I think that, that you're talking here about 19th, 20th century artists, Jewish artists and writers, but there's a, a very long and deep history here, both of primitivism and also 
Jewish primitivism as a result as well. The sort of story of modern primitivism and of modernist primitivism, you know, as a specifically literary or artistic project is inextricable from the history of colonialism. The sort of mechanics and the process of colonialism uncovered for the Western scientists who were creating the discipline of anthropology, uncovered its objects. And the sort of quote-unquote discovery of, and I should say, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop saying quote-unquote, but primitivism when discussing these subjects, obviously, that we have to distinguish between the built-in stereotypes and negative valences in these terms, which reflect the attitudes of the people engaging in this project and the scholars studying them. So the dynamics of colonialism, the creation of the colonial subject through the objectification of humans and their material culture and artistic cultures is crucial. There really isn't modernist primitivism without this process. Museums as repositories that in the late 19th century really began to collect and start displaying art objects and ethnographic objects from cultures that that were being conquered um, and dominated and discovered by colonial governments. Um, Museums were an important conduit. There were also popular conduits for, for the mediation of this sort of knowledge that was discovered by colonialism. Most famously, the, the ethnographic showcases that were very popular across Europe, especially in, in Germany and, and to a lesser degree in neighboring countries. Karl Hagenbeck was the primary impresario there, and he makes a sort of cameo appearance in my discussion of Kafka because of Hagenbeck's important place as the leading figure who turned the discoveries and the creation of anthropological knowledge into a medium of popular entertainment. Primitivism emerges from this crossover between colonial science and the sort of popularization of the colonial project through art and entertainment. Part of what is really interesting about this question and this issue of primitivism broadly speaking, in relationship with with colonialism is is a handful of different things. One of them is this tension in terms of the production of colonial knowledge and how it functions in the process of, uh, of empire. You know, on the one hand, the process of imperialism actually constructing empire by gaining knowledge about the people who are under the control of uh, imperial powers, but also this kind of element of kind of showing off you know, to the public what imperial power looks like, right? You know, the fact that you have the British Museum bringing back all of these looted cultural objects and putting them on display. It's, it's not really necessarily about the public edification, even though they might say that today, right? You know, it has to do with saying, look, you know, we have these colonial territories and, you know, look what we found there and look how great we are. The same way that the fact that you can get bananas in the winter at the grocery store, is a representation of imperial power you know, because you have access to tropical uh, fruits and uh, and so on and so forth. You know, and so there's this element where by this colonial project and many of these aspects of kind of bringing it home to the metropole is very triumphalist for the imperial powers, right? But you're also saying how this is kind of internal self-critique right? by saying that the primitivists are saying, well, we have these cultural artifacts which we have taken from from the native peoples and the, the territories that we've conquered or that we control, but it's actually a signifier of the negative things about our contemporary society, so to speak. This is one of the great ironies of primitivism, 
which is that it it depends on the infrastructure and the institutions of the society that it critiques, not just in the general way that all you know critique, whether philosophical or, or cultural, does, but kind of in a very very concrete way, right? So Picasso claims that these African sculptures are the primary catalysts for him, but he doesn't see them in Africa where they, you know, would have been used or appreciated in the context they created them. He sees them in a museum and then he begins buying them for his own collection. So mediated specifically through the mechanisms and the institutions of the powers that are then critiqued. This is an irony at the very least and and maybe even a paradox and when it gets filtered through or placed into the context of Jewish culture and Jews critiquing the European political powers or specific elements of contemporary European Jewish culture and society, the irony gets, in a way, doubled. It makes even less sense. Sure, primitivism critiques the European powers right? You see these art objects and you say, oh, this makes me realize that the entire basis of, of European culture is, is hollow or has taken the wrong direction. There's a, a sort of binary there. How does Jewish culture fit into this dynamic? And what's the upshot for the people participating in it? This creates a lot of sort of strange conflations and contrasts and comparisons that really produce the the sort of interest, at least to me, of the the works, the artistic works and literary works that I talk about. What exactly is going on as a critical project, as a political project, when Jews are critiquing what? European society, often yes, but also European Jewish society, through the identification of their own culture, Right. And obviously their own, who is they and what does it mean to own it? That's complicated. And that's something that gets worked out in these texts. But sort of basically speaking through the identification of their culture with the dominated objects of European colonial systems, what's the upshot there? What do they think they're getting out of it? I was really struck by your discussion of Kafka in the book and and you know, even more precisely by by Kafka's words you know, themselves. I think you start the chapter on Kafka by quoting him. I have it actually here right in front of me, you know, where Kafka was writing about the Hasidic Jews uh, in Prague. And he writes, quote, looked at precisely, it was like a wild African tribe, sheer superstition, right? And so what is going on here in terms of Kafka and his kind of primitivist approach to Orthodox Jews or to Eastern Jews. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways uh, that we can slice this whole situation in general, which I hope we can get to in a few minutes. But I think that Kafka is just a really particularly striking example where you're recasting a really prominent you know, Jewish writer through the lens of primitivism. So what do you mean when you say that Kafka is a primitivist in the first place? And how does this perhaps help us to understand Kafka new ways? the first line of the introduction looked at precisely, it was something like a savage African tribe. And then in the chapter on Kafka, I come back to that quotation because it's so provocative. And I changed the translation of the German wilde, wie bei einer wilden afrikanischen Volksstamm, he says, savage African tribe, wild African tribe, right, to capture these valences that are encapsulated in the word. But the amazing thing is that 
he says this at all. Like, what a weird thing to say. What could he possibly mean? The quotation comes from his friend Max Brod's biography of Kafka. And Brod says that Kafka said that to him after they had gone to a Hasidic gathering, actually a, a, a Shalashidis tish of a, a relatively minor Rebbe who was in Prague because many among the thousands of Jewish refugees from the Eastern Front in the First World War westward were Hasidic Rebbe's. Um, and many went to Vienna and some went to Prague, some went to Berlin. One of them ended up in Prague and Kafka and two friends go to visit. It was Kafka and Brod and this uh, amazing character, Yerzy Langer. Yerzy Langer is, um, I think we can say, probably the only gay Hasidic Czech poet. If there are others, then I'd be curious to learn about them. But to my knowledge, he was the only one. He's a fascinating character who grew up in the same largely German-speaking Jewish uh, assimilated milieu as Kafka and Max Brod in Prague. But Yerzy Langer became enamored with Hasidism and uh, moved east to Belz, to one of the largest Hasidic courts, and lived there, I think, for two years, became Hasidic. And he came back to Prague as a Hasidic Jew. His brother, uh, who wrote an introduction later to a, a, a book by Langer about Hasidism, said that he had brought bells with him. Right? He kind of scandalized all of his assimilated bourgeois friends by you know, affecting the completely disheveled, you know, mystical not paying attention to appearance, and also, you know, with a long beard and 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 full Hasidic dress and everything, right? So his friend Yerzy Langer says, I'm Hasidic now, let me show you what the real Hasidim are like, let me take you to see Hasidim. Kafka was very interested in the period in Hasidim and in Yiddish culture in general, catalyzed by an encounter with a, a Yiddish theater group, and he goes to a Hasidic gathering, and then he says, as Broad reports with this language, look that precisely, genau genommen right? This kind of objective or, or feigning to be objective, clinical sort of way of describing it. It was something like a savage African tribe. Why make that comparison? Where does it even come from? Here's the thing. It's not really negative. He's not saying, oh, Hasidim are terrible and this whole thing is terrible, which you could expect based on the reception of Eastern European Jews by German-speaking Jews in Middle Europa who you know, famously were given the, the epithet Ostjuden, which is, in one sense, just a, a geographical descriptor, Eastern Jews, but in another sense was heavily laden with dismissive judgment, Ostjuden, the Jews from there. Stephen Ashheim's famous book about the reception of Eastern European Jews in Germany called Brothers and Strangers, right? There was, at least initially, a heavy emphasis on the strangers part, Jewish primitivism emerges, at least in part, from a reorientation toward the brothers' part. But obviously, the frisson of strangeness is important there. There's a push-pull dynamic. It's not a sort of unambiguous condemnation or disdain, but it's also not an unambiguous positive valuation. Primitivism, sure, it's all gung-ho about primitive culture, right? But it's never unambiguous, right? Picasso is not saying, oh, I disdain European representation so much that I'm going to give it all up, right? I'm still going to be an artist. I'm still going to try to sell my works, but I'm going to revisit 
parts of the project, parts of the meaning of artistic representation. Paul Gauguin went further, right? He did leave behind his wife and children significantly in Paris, but he didn't leave behind the art world. He still had to sell paintings to make a living. So primitivism is is never a complete condemnation or negation of modernity. It's always ambiguous. What's so interesting about Kafka is that the ambiguity, or rather the ambivalence, because it's not ambiguous. Sometimes you see him, you know, saying, no, this is bad, and sometimes, oh, this is great. But the ambivalence, the the indecision is always there and is in fact in the forefront. Another um, really provocative quotation that I, I bring in in the Kafka chapter is that um, he said in 1915, that was the when he goes to visit the, the Hasidic Rebbe, and he says they're like a wild African tribe. Here's something he says in 1912, okay, a couple of years earlier, when he uh, is in the midst of his engagement and fascination with Yiddish theater. He put on a, a, a sort of poetry and, and staged reading of Yiddish literature in Prague for a local, primarily, presumably Jewish audience. And he gave a speech about Yiddish. And he says, quote, once Yiddish has taken hold of you and moved you, and Yiddish is everything, the words, the Hasidic melody, and the essential character of this Eastern European Jewish actor himself, right? And he's pointing presumably on the stage to the guy who's about to give the reading. You will have forgotten your former reserve. Then you will come to feel the true unity of Yiddish, right? This is a strange kind of like almost mystical conception of what a language is. But he was also in that same speech talking about the language, giving a little capsule history of the language itself. Where does it come from? How did it develop? And he sees no contrast between this completely strange, mystical notion that Yiddish is everything. And then he goes on in the speech to say, you already know Yiddish. You think you don't, but it's inside you, right? And obviously, anybody who has ever learned a language uh, knows that that is not true, right? When you're sitting there on the first day of German or Yiddish 101, you do not know the language inside of you. But here, Kafka is saying, you do. And Yiddish is everything. Right, that's 1912. In 1914, he writes in his diary, quote, What do I have in common with Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself. I should stand quietly in a corner, happy that I can breathe. And then in 1915 is that next comment about the Hasidic Jews um, being like a wild African tribe. So he goes from seeing Eastern European Jewish culture as this exciting, kind of like all-encompassing thing to rejecting the premise of exoticizing, right? He's saying, forget me in relation to other Jews. The problem is me in relation to myself. And then he pivots again back to a certain kind of exoticizing and distancing from Jews, right? So in a way, he's all over the map in terms of gauging and calibrating that relationship between the self and the other between the subject and the object that is at the heart of the primitivist dynamic. But the fact that he's all over the map with that, I think, is what makes his primitivism so captivating. Because primitivism is ultimately not, and certainly not Jewish primitivism, about pegging something, whether it's a notion of society or of the self, down to a stable, fixed point. It's about constantly calibrating that relationship between the self and the other. And Kafka is sort of aggressively doing that calibration, moving all over the map. And it comes out in a whole bunch of different places in his works. And this is also interesting, you know, when you're 
thinking about Kafka, how do you relate the diaries to the biography, to the written works, to the unpublished written works, and to the far fewer published written works? The way I see it, this primitivism, which itself is is dynamic, comes out in, in I think, in all of these areas. So it appears in the diaries, um, and it also appears in some of his most famous works. I talk about his short piece, which appeared as, as a standalone published piece, but also in the novel The Trial, the piece Before the Law, where he talks about uh, a person from the country, which has been argued to be a sort of literal translation of Am Haaretz, Hebrew or Yiddish for a person lacking in knowledge, lacking in sophisticated knowledge, who comes seeking the law, right? And the law is a literal translation, uh, arguably for Torah, so is the person seeking knowledge of the laws, the person seeking access to Jewish knowledge, right? And the gatekeeper is, and this isn't sort of exact, but it's quite suggestive the way I argue it. The gatekeeper has a big beard, wears fur clothing, right? There are these kind of stereotype suggestions of Hasidic culture. And that's just one example of the way that this dynamic of seeking something gets related to certain notions of Jewish identity in Kafka. To tie things back to what we were talking about in relation to European colonialism and ethnographic showcases, there's an amazing story by Kafka called A Report to an Academy, which is a transcription, not a transcription, I'm not sure what word you'd use, but a speech given by an ape who has been captured and brought to Europe and who has taught himself civilization and who has taught himself to speak. And it's a report by this ape to an academy, it's not specified what kind, some kind of scientific academy, about his process of self-discovery and becoming. As I argue it, this very, you know, clearly ironic description of the becoming of an animal into something that's not not animal, but also not human, because he's still an ape, right? He hasn't become a human, is a critical and ironic rumination on the process of Jewish becoming and Jewish identity in Europe. How does Jewishness relate to Europeanness? Can a European Jew ever really fully be European? And what would that mean? I think that part of what is interesting here is that you're describing this kind of primitivism within the context of the Central European Jewish encounter with Eastern European Jews. And so what is distinctive here then, right, you know, about this primitivism from the broader fascination of the Western Jews with, with Eastern Jews that you see particularly in the first decades of the 20th century in many ways continues far beyond that as well. So what, what is distinctively primitivist about it, especially when we understand that the Eastern European Jews were not primitive, right? You know, I think that, that such a great deal of research you know, over the years has shown the ways in which the more traditional quote-unquote Jews of the East were actually very modern. You know, so many things about the Eastern European Jewish culture, you know, particularly the Hasidic Eastern European Jewish culture, that are the subject of this kind of, you know, eastward gaze, the Central European, Western European Jews upon the Ostjuden, right, for lack of a better term, these were not actually primitive people who were being encountered. When you look at Kafka, how does this help us to understand better the nature of this interaction, to what extent is this primitivism of Kafka and others who are kind of in the same kind of circle and, and doing similar kinds of things? How is it different? And then also, how does this primitivist 
lens help us to understand the relationship between Western and Central European Jews with the Jews in the East in, in a new way? Obviously, and it, it bears restating that primitivism as a sort of historical or anthropological or, or any other kind of scientific evaluation, it's wrong. They weren't right. They were mistaken in their assessment of other peoples. And that goes both for the framework that opposes the, the savage and the primitive to the civilized and also then goes into the, the particulars. And as is the case most of the time when people sort of trade in, in myths or, or falsehoods, what it says is more about the people communicating and transmitting them than about the objects of these myths or falsehoods, right? So why were Central European Jews, German-speaking Jews, why was there this, this thing that Gershom Scholem famously later called the cult of the Ostjuden? What does that mean? And why would the Ostjuden have been identified with primitiveness? So obviously, you know, Eastern European Jews were not primitive, yet they were perceived as primitive. If German Jews had wanted to be careful about crafting Ostjuden as a sort of careful ethnographic category, they would have had to get into the demographics of social change in Eastern Europe. What percentage of Eastern European Jews are actually observant of, of the mitzvot? Uh, how many are actually Hasidic? But Ostjuden was a sort of a conflation, a, a very capacious stereotype that encapsulated a certain notion of what those people were in relation to a specific notion of what German-speaking Jewry was. Um, and that's sort of the standard um, historiographical understanding of the creation of the Ostjuden as a category, as a myth in the period, you know, around 1900. But what's interesting is this identification of Yiddish with primitiveness, of Hasidic Jews with primitiveness, not only done by German Jews, by people for whom Ostjuden was a category, it was also done by Eastern European Jews, by Yiddish writers. So one of the important things is that there isn't, in regards to primitivism, a sort of bright line between German literature and Yiddish literature. There's a continuum, there's a range. I argue that seen through the lens of primitivism, what we're actually looking at is a literary body, a literary system that includes German and Yiddish. And so while from a social and cultural historical perspective, the category of the Ostjuden does map on, of course, and, and emerges from the German-speaking context, when we put aside that keyword, that specific term, and we start looking at the broader valences, both in terms of aesthetics, but also in terms of the ways that identity is constructed and negotiated in things like travel literature or novels, then we start to see fewer distinctions between German and Yiddish. And we get this weird realization that, oh, the Eastern European Jews are exoticizing themselves. And I think this is important because if we were just looking at Kafka, we could say, oh, this, you know, Jewish primitivism then remains uh, an example of othering of some group that is, that is pushed away, you know, in relation to power dynamics, social class, geography, and, and so on. So a kind of the same dynamics as primitivism more broadly, but on a smaller scale, you know, compressed into Central and Eastern Europe. But it's not only, there's a powerful dynamic of the primitivization of the self. And that also carries over into 
German primitivism, because part of what this primitivism entails is the appropriation and the adoption of the primitive identity. So it's not just saying, oh, those people are primitive and that's great because it shows us a better way to be, but I can be that too, and I will be that too. And so one of the most extreme examples of that would be Kafka's friend, Yerji Langer, who went and became Hasidic. Uh, and there are other examples of people from a sort of assimilated German-speaking milieus in the period doing something similar. But it didn't always have to be a sort of adoption of, of social or religious norms. It could be an internalization of the self as primitive. I think this was one of the really striking things that you were thinking about, you know, about what is distinctive about Jewish primitivism from European primitivism more broadly, you know, which is that European primitivism had as its object, right, what was being observed as a group that was an other, right? Whereas the Jews were primitivizing themselves, which I think is a really powerful way of thinking about not just like, what is Jewish primitivism, but what are the implications of this primitivism? Because like you said, someone like Yerzi Langer could go and become Hasidic, right? Because he was a Jew, Paul Gauguin could travel to Tahiti, right? But he would still remain a French person. Yeah. You know, Gauguin said that his goal is to become savage in spite of himself, right? Acknowledging fundamentally that, that racialized aspect that gets mapped onto skin color in the period and other social factors that he recognized he either wasn't prepared to or couldn't relinquish, you know, significantly for his case, enmeshment in, in the European art market. The racial aspect is present, but not in the same overt way in the Jewish context. So, you know, passing is an option in European Jewish racialized dynamics and uh, performance of identity in a much more pronounced way, right? Passing in both directions. There's an interesting critique, uh, sort of counter-primitivism, a critique of primitivism from within German-Jewish culture, uh, an article that appeared in the German-Jewish journal Der Jude by Marcus Reiner, who went on to be, I think, an Israeli engineer. Um, but he wrote in 1917 about primitivity and modernity. He wrote, you know, the Ostjuden regard you, meaning his readers, meaning him also, you as primitive right? Because you are lacking in an understanding of spiritual truths. And he ends the article by saying, you know, and the irony is that it's so easy for one of these Eastern European yeshiva bachers to take off his hat and put on a modern European suit and move to Berlin and become a bank director, right? Easy to do that. But it's so hard for the European bank director to find true religious unity with God and spiritual attainment the way they have there, right? So in a way that, that also sort of reifies primitivism, right? That the Western Jews are lacking in something that the Eastern European Jews have, but it flips the terms of the, of the comparison, you know, saying that what's actually primitive is, is the Western Jews. There's a relationship between this cultural phenomenon of primitivism and the Jewish reception and, and interpretation and utilization of that primitivism with the broader political landscape in which Jews were living. By expressing this type of Jewish primitivism to say that the Jews of the East, you know, are 
quote unquote more primitive, you know, but also something to be admired. You know, they're othering themselves in the context of the political struggle for emancipation and equal civil and civic rights, you know, in Western and Central Europe and, you know, in all sorts of other ways, you know. So, like, I think that part of what you're discussing here is that Jewish primitivism is not just saying, like, oh, I'm going to make a piece of artwork and uh, and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to valorize this quote-unquote primitive culture, but that it has this kind of political stakes because it has this inherent internal aspect because it's by Jews about Jews. In an era where there's this huge debate, you know, are Jews European to begin with, right? Are Jews outsiders or should they be welcomed in to uh, European societies? So part of what we're moving towards here, like, and, and I think that, that something you were starting to scratch the surface of is that, that Jewish primitivism is not just a cultural movement or a, a cultural mode, but it, it has a politics to it as well. The basic premise is that in Jewish modernity, the emergence of Jewish culture is bound up with the emergence of Jewish politics. In a sense, in, in many ways, they're the same project. I'm talking about matters that, to one degree or another, are cultural or aesthetic. They're also deeply political. And they're deeply political because, they, first of all, they suggest exactly what you said, that to make the argument that, that a different kind of Jewish identity that is less enmeshed with European modernity is preferable, is to reject that hard-won gains of Jewish emancipation of inclusion in the European political project, whatever degree of inclusion had been achieved, and to recognize that there were limits to it and that whatever had been achieved wasn't working, right? That's sort of like the, the basic premise. This, is, this isn't working, which is startling because what it's saying is that in the midst of this project, it's not worth pursuing anymore. Now, of course, nobody was saying, oh, therefore, you know, we should relinquish whatever rights we had gained, whether in the Austro-Hungarian Empire or wherever, right? We no longer want to be whatever degree of citizen. Nobody was arguing that. But what they were arguing is that the entire project of the creation of modern European Jewishness couldn't operate along the same tracks and by the same metrics as the creation of modern European non-Jewish identities. Um, another way of saying this is Jewish primitivism emerges from the aesthetics and the politics of Romantic nationalism, the creation of the European nation-state, of, of Germanness, of Frenchness. But it, at the same time, it rejects it uh, and recognizes that it's an impossibility for European Jews. There won't be a European Jewish nation-state, and there won't be a culture or a cultural project along those same lines. And so the question that this raises is, what are the political opportunities or political consequences that emerge from this critical stance? Now, that changes dramatically from figure to figure. Just to throw out there, my favorite sort of pairing is the German-Jewish poet Elsa Lasker-Schuler, who was one of the most prominent German-language poets um, in the first half of the 20th century. It was a fascinating woman. Um, who had achieved, you know, a pretty broad recognition and success as a as a poet, and was deeply involved in the German avant-garde. She had befriended in the early 1920s this group of Yiddish-speaking poets, writers, and artists who flocked to Berlin during and in the wake of the Russian Revolution, you know, in that moment when Berlin became the capital of the artistic avant-garde in, in Europe. You know, she was at that point um, in her 50s, I think, 
and was a well-established German poet, and she befriended these, these Yiddish writers. She had, by that point, long created and performed a unique kind of identity and persona. The one that she used most often was Prince Yusuf, right? this kind of Arabic-sounding epithet she gave herself of uh, a character, this character, Prince Yusuf, who appeared in her literary works, but also was a persona that she adopted in her day-to-day life. She would sign letters, Prince Yusuf. She would insist that her friends and people she was talking to address her as Prince Yusuf. She would kind of dress up in this Orientalist, you know, kind of faux Middle Eastern costume. This sort of exoticism and Orientalism was all over her personal life and her literary works. That's sort of step A of Elsa Lasker Schuler, and then she befriends these these Yiddish writers, most notably the Yiddish writer Uritzvi Greenberg, who in the early 1920s was still a Yiddish writer. Just a few short years later, became one of the the great Hebrew poets of the 20th century. Also, one of the most I don't know how to describe him in one sentence, but one of the most politically hard right Zionist writers the 20th century. At one point in his political journey, he identified himself as a fascist. And he was certainly on the far, far right of the, of the revisionist Zionist. Elza Lasker Schuler, as I mentioned, was deeply involved in the German avant-garde. Far, far left-wing revolutionaries were her sort of um, companions and members of her cohort. But here she had this friendship with a figure who went on to become a far hard right, a radical right-wing Hebrew poet. And their friendship was not just a sort of, you know, odd couple having strange conversations at the cafe, but there was a poetic dynamic. Elsa Lasker Schuler, one of the motifs that she had in her works, she drew it, she wrote about it, was something called the Bund der Wilden Juden, the Society of Savage Jews. And she was the chief of it, the Society of Savage Jews. Uritzvi Greenberg borrowed it and translated it into Hebrew. And he called it the Brit HaYehudim HaPraim, literal translation, the Society of Savage Jews, Bund Brit. And he turned it from her conception of the savage Jews as a kind of utopian community of her friends, other writers, living unburdened by European modernity in this kind of polity governed by a poet, right? Prince Yusuf is, is her, it's a poet, she's in charge. It's just her and her friends. It's great. He turns it into a vision for the Zionist settlement of Palestine. The Brit HaYehudim HaPraim for Greenberg are the Chalutzim, are the, are the settlers, moving into the land of Israel and building it, um, draining the swamps. You know, these images appear in poems where he uses this trope of the society of savage Jews. So in this sort of connection are two political visions for what Jewish primitivism can generate. One which was completely idiosyncratic, this kind of utopia that had no opportunity for political reality, as Alaska Schuler's vision of what Jewish primitivism could create, something which depended on the individual subjectivity of the poet and which could only exist as a fantasy. And Greenberg, whose vision was one that became, in certain respects, real and very familiar because it meshed with and it contributed to a political project that bore actual political fruits, which is the creation of the state of Israel. So you have kind of coming from the very same poetic trope to very different political visions. You are illustrating a couple of different layers to the political meaning of Jewish primitivism, right? Because on the one hand, it is about the status of Jews in Europe, right? But there's also an element here 
which actually brings us back towards the beginning of our conversation about the relationship between Jewish primitivism and colonialism. So you spoke previously at length about the relationship between primitivism, broadly speaking, and the European colonial project. It is enabled by colonialism because Europeans are coming into contact with native peoples and in colonial territories. So there's all sorts of elements of that that relate to colonialism, but there's also the relationship between Western and Central European Jews with the Ostjuden. You know, there's also a colonial connection there, right? In as much as for Central Europeans, there is a colonial relationship with the East on the one hand, right? And then there's also kind of the broader history here of European Jews as a colonial object. You know, I'm thinking here about the work of Susanna Heschel and others who have kind of followed in her path to understand how processes of European colonialism did not just operate on far-flung colonial territories, but also operated within Europe itself, you know, with Jews as being a colonized group, so to speak, within Europe. So there's this element where the idea of Jewish primitivism is, I guess it makes sense in the context of the fact that the Jews can be understood within the European context as a colonial subject, right? The second thing, and then of course, you just talked about Erich V. Grimberg and the way in which Jewish primitivism was mobilized in the context of the settlement of Israel and Palestine. As we think about colonial context of primitivism at large, what does this tell us then about like the relationship of Jews with colonialism and, and the connections that are between all these different elements? Starting from the end point of what this tells us is that the sort of um, political opportunities of the place in which primitivism and colonialism meet, there's two sides to that coin. You know, it, it can be critical or or productive of the dynamic. It can be radical right or radical left. It can be uh, Zionist or it can be non or anti or counter Zionist. Going back a step to the heart of your comment, I think that that, that is really fundamental and really important. The recognition that Jews are enmeshed in the colonial dynamic and dependent on it and objects of it. And this is, of course, something that has been increasingly part of the scholarly discussion, the, the ways in which inter-European colonialism worked, German in regards to Poland. This is also something that I think, you know, has come up in relation to the so-called catechism debate uh, of the last few months about comparisons of the Holocaust to colonial violence and colonial genocidal violence. And these discussions really depend to a great degree on the early a recognition of Susanna Heschel and also of Jonathan Hess and others of the ways in which these colonial dynamics were at work in the German Jewish context before and separate from the political processes of colonialism. In other words, there's a, a sort of creation of a colonial fantasy that is at work on the creation of inner European identities that I think applies quite broadly, and this is something that's being recognized increasingly. Um, but certainly in relation to European Jews, in relation to German Jews, that German Jews could be the objects of colonialist thinking, even when they're not living in colonies, when they're living in Germany. One of the sort of uh, recognitions or resonances that this recognition opens up is the opportunity for comparison with the positions of of other types of primitivisms, like Black primitivisms, whether of the Harlem Renaissance or of the French Caribbean, where the colonized subjects are producing the primitivism themselves, right, as a form of resistance and as a form of critique. And within the context of the study of, of these literatures, you know, it's been a somewhat contested point 
the degree to which this primitivism is simply a recapitulation or an imposition on oneself, that is the Black colonial subject, of the racializing and racist and dominating gaze and discourse of the colonial power, or to what degree it can actually serve as an opportunity for resistance and the reappropriation of a certain type of identity to work against an identity imposed from without. I think there are powerful resonances there with the cases that I look at of European Jewish primitivism working within systems that both politically and aesthetically were not initially generated to be able to protect or or pursue the interests of a subjugated or dominated minority, but then are turned against the system that generated them. One thing that I, I want to ask you about here as we consider the politics of Jewish primitivism is that it's not just the valorizing of the so-called primitive, right? But it's a critique of the modern. In that context, I think part of what's really interesting here is that the Jewish primitivism that you're describing in your book is part of a, a larger ecosystem of ideas, culture, politics, and, and you know, in particular, you know, as a kind of a, a critique of modernity or of modernism. And, and But the thing is that there are all sorts of anti-modernisms in general, but also specifically Jewish anti-modernisms. I think that, that we can understand a lot of modern Jewish politics as being anti-modern, right? Zionism, the rejection of emancipation, the need for the return, so to speak, to a Jewish commonwealth of the past, right? Simon Dubnov and his nostalgia for early modern Jewish autonomy, Right here, also to some extent, a rejection of emancipation. You know, Salaboron, you know, in his essay, Get an Emancipation, and much more broadly than that as well, you know, he's kind of arguing that modernity is not so great for Jews. And then, of course, you know, after the Holocaust, there are all sorts of anti modern perspectives, you know, thinking about like Hannah Arendt and figures in the Frankfurt School and so on and so forth, who basically see totalitarianism and the Holocaust as essentially natural byproducts of modernity, right? So there's all sorts of people who are critiquing modernity all the time, you know, both in this, these early decades of the 20th century that, that you're dealing with also after the Holocaust. So, you know, what's the relationship then between Jewish primitivism and the kind of broader anti-modern strain among many Jewish leaders, Jewish intellectuals who are sort of seeing that modernity is not necessarily all that it's cracked up to be? You know, the work by George Boas and Arthur Lovejoy to, to map out all of primitivism from antiquity to, to the modern period, right? What it shows um, in its huge variety, and they go about in the introduction trying to sort of taxonomize the various primitivisms, and like there's a million, and there's different ways of organizing them. But at heart, it comes down to a critique of now. In modernity, in Western modernity, that critique of now becomes one of the sort of central facets, one of the constitutive elements of Western modernity is that that critique of modernity. Right? Maybe in other periods, well, you always have other notable elements, but somehow primitivism goes from being one thing on the menu, right, from antiquity to modernity. And in modernity, it's like one of the main things on the menu. And certainly you find that in, in sort of um, political theory and historiography. I mean, Marx and his notion of primitive communism. Right now, I think one of the most popular big name current works of revisionist history, the, the book by David Wengrow and David Graeber. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it or seen any of the reviews. The, the Dawn of Everything, called something like that, is a 
sort of anarchist re-envisioning uh, of the history of civilization, which essentially says that it didn't have to be this way. It, and, and looking to the past for evidence of the development of civilization that didn't result in systems of domination and violence. Eco-primitivism, you know, John Zerzan, lots of different political philosophers. The paleo diet, right? You know, like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of examples. These things keep on coming up because it's it's quite easy to say, you know, things are bad now. They must have been better earlier. And the farther back you go or the farther away you go, the less tied to evidence you have to be, right? So the paleo diet, who really knows what they were eating, but it was clearly better. So in terms of primitivism, you know, very broadly construed, it's a powerful mode of critique because it's, it's also a sort of easy mode of critique. It's readily available, the past, um, especially the deep past or the distant past. How does it get activated as critique and how does it get activated as productive tool, whether it's for an aesthetic project or a political project, right? That's a more complicated question you know, thinking about historiography, right? Maybe it's a little bit easier to produce a work of historiography that starts from a primitivist or quasi-primitivist notion because you can just turn your direction a little bit, right? What's the telos of Jewish history? The perfection of diaspora or the resettlement of the land of Israel, something like that. In that regard, it can kind of make a certain kind of sense but in other regards, and this is where Jewish primitivism is quite weird, it doesn't make sense because in most other types of primitivism, there's still that distance between who you are or what your project is and that past, right? But if Jewish primitivism, especially in the early 20th century, if the premise of it is that there is this primitive object and it's right here, right? Whether it's within the self or whether it's 500 miles away in Poland, whatever it is. If it's right here and right now, then what do you do with it, right? Then it's no longer a speculative utopia. Then you have a here and now that you have to deal with, and that creates a problem. And that also creates one of what I argue is one of the most notable features of Jewish primitivism, which is being faced with this problem, right? You can't speculate uh, about fantasy utopias based on an object that's like in the same room as you. It's like, oh, the primitive Jewish identity, the Hasidic Judaism will save us, and the Hasidic Jews you know, are like, what are you talking about? That sounds like a, a funny scene, but it actually, it happened, you know, in um, travel literature. Travel literature, of course, is one of the great genres of colonialism. It enables the European subject to go out and discover himself, to mediate that through literature. There's Jewish travel literature in the interwar period. I talk about works by the German writers Alfred Dublin and Josef Hoth, um, who have, have these amazing travelogues and also of the Yiddish writer Anski. They go to do discoveries of their own, but within Europe, not far from where they started out from. And both Dublin and Anski have scenes in their travelogues where they go visit Hasidic rebbies. And Dublin has one that's, that's quite funny, at least to me, certainly not to him the way he portrays it. But he goes to meet the Gerer Rebbe, the uh, most powerful, richest, I guess, Hasidic Rebbe in interwar Poland, among the most followers in the period. He gets an audience with him. He goes into him and he thinks he's going to like be completely wowed and bowled over like a Hasidic Rebbe, right? This, this idea of the atavistic, raw spiritual power, right? That you might get from reading Martin Buber on the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism. 
Dublin goes in to meet the Gera Rebbe. And first of all, he doesn't share a language with him because Dublin doesn't speak Yiddish and the Gera Rebbe doesn't speak German and neither of them speaks Polish. Dublin has a translator, somebody guiding him, and the Gera Rebbe is talking to this guy. And then Dublin, like, kind of thinks he's going to have an interview. And the Gera Rebbe basically says no. And then they leave. And Dublin is disappointed. He's like, what happened? And his tour guide says to him, well, the Rebbe wanted to know what you wanted and if you were a lawyer, right? So Dublin is fantasizing this kind of encounter that's not connected to the reality of the sort of pastoral functions of the Gera Rebbe or of the actual dynamics of that society and culture that he was bringing his fantasies into. And that was a problem. How do you keep up the primitivist project in the face of the reality of the things that you are fantasizing about. What's amazing is that being faced with the reality of this object that you are objectifying, it doesn't stop the primitivist project, either as an aesthetic or as an identity project, for those writers like Dublin and Ansky and Roth who are faced with it. Amazingly, each one of them has these travelogues where they actually meet the objects of their primitivist uh, fantasies and are sort of confronted with these failures or these moments of failure. They have these confrontations. And then afterwards, they write works of fiction that are sort of uh, unambiguous uh, enunciations of primitivist fantasy. So that paradox uh, emerges, right? It doesn't, it doesn't stop the encounter with the primitive object and the recognition that maybe primitivism is a fantasy rather than a description of reality doesn't stop primitivism for these writers. And that's something that I think is strikingly present, maybe even unique, although always a risk to claim that anything is unique in, in academic discourse. So let's just say striking about Jewish primitivism, that this encounter happens all the time and doesn't stop primitivism, but seems to be more grist for the mill. Part of what is so interesting about this whole discussion about Jewish primitivism is that there is something particularly striking about it, you know, and it has its own context within modern Jewish culture, modern Jewish politics. Some of those elements of distinctiveness that you mentioned, right, the fact that the objects which are being observed through the primitivist lens can be directly encountered, right, you know, as opposed to being far away or in the past entirely imagined. There are all sorts of elements here which are which are really maybe the right word is unique, right? There's something really interesting about them that that pose very specific questions, very specific contexts. But I kind of want to broaden our lens as we get sort of towards the end of our conversation. You know, you've mentioned uh, you know a, a couple of different ways in which primitivism manifested itself in the past and also continues to do so. You know, not just in the context of European painters and so on and so forth, but in the way that people envision the past, right? You talk about Marx, you know, primitive communism, you know, all sorts of other things here. So part of the question is, what is the contribution of thinking about Jewish primitivism to a broader discussion of primitivism at large? How is it that looking at primitivism in the case of 20th century Jewish culture, right? How does that help us to understand the broader phenomenon of primitivism in 19th and early 20th century European culture, but also even up until today, you know, when people who are searching for something better say that maybe things were better in the past. 
sometimes that manifests itself in a form of primitivism. You know, how is it that thinking about Jewish primitivism can expand the horizons of how we think about primitivism at large? I think that it tells quite a different story than the one that you would get if your acquaintance with primitivism comes from, you know, art history, not just art history 101, but really, you know, an extensive art historical uh, engagement with and discussion of primitivism because primitivism was so dominant in some respects in the visual arts. The early scholarly work on it for, for decades, starting from the 1920s, was done in the context of art history. So first of all, it was done in the context of art history, that is about paintings. And second of all, it was done from a European perspective, that is from the political and intellectual situation of the colonial powers. And so primitivism was conceived and was sort of codified and canonized largely as an aesthetic and, and also a political discourse that conditions the relationship between the European self and the some version of the other, the colonial other, the exotic primitive other. Jewish primitivism is quite distinctly different than that. It gives a whole different chapter of this story that we start also to learn from recent work on primitivisms in colonial contexts themselves, as I mentioned, let's say uh, primitivism within the, the literature of the French Caribbean culture. You know, there, there are other examples. And what you see from that is that this dominant story uh, doesn't tell the whole story of what primitivism can do. Right? So you might conclude that primitivism is simply a tool of colonial powers for the subjugation and domination of the other. Yes, it, it is that. But not only, there's a more complicated uh, story of critique that can and needs to be told. Right, So that's sort of an important narrative that has been excluded. There's also a question of, of medium, of discipline. Primitivism is not just about our history. For a long time, it was more or less thought that primitivism is largely an art historical matter. You know, the, the number of works about literary primitivism are very few and quite recent. A great book um, by Ben Etherington called Literary Primitivism that came out, like my book with Stanford University Press a couple of years ago, a work in German by Nicola Guess about literary primitivism in German. But the vast majority of scholarship is on art history, which is sort of a, a disciplinary peculiarity, maybe comes also in part from the fact that, yes, Gauguin and Picasso were these, you know, dominant, powerful forces. But there's a whole world out there of literature that was participating in this project and was doing it and gives us a different view of its opportunities and possibilities. Bringing literature and art into discussion with each other, bringing a Jewish example of a European phenomenon into conversation with the dominant narrative of that European phenomenon, that complicates it and it shows that it wasn't so simple. Why hasn't there been any discussion of Jewish primitivism until now? Why, why am I the first? Right? This is sort of maybe a meta question about disciplinary histories rather than a question about, oh, you know, Spinner discovered something that nobody else recognized. But there was a, a powerful story that had been told um, that was excluding the Jewish story. And then within Jewish studies, you know, I think that my approach offers an opportunity to do some things that is also increasingly being done in the scholarly world. Uh, for example, bring different languages of Jewish literatures and the study of different languages of Jewish literatures into conversation with each other. In my case, primarily German and Yiddish, but also with Uri Tzvi Greenberg, there's some discussion of, of Hebrew works, right? To see European Jewish culture not through the lens of the nation state 
or through the lens of political and ideological affiliations, communist, Bundist, Zionist, but through other frameworks that can bridge ideological differences, that can bridge linguistic differences, and offer us a way of thinking together with and thinking through different configurations that are quite distinct from the usual way the very powerful sort of genealogies and histories of Jewish politics and Jewish culture have presented things. So this is not to say that thinking about Jewish literature through a political lens or through the lens of it, the language that it's written in is incorrect. Just as it's not to say that primitivism as uh, you know an art historical phenomenon is not correct. Of course, those things are true. But there's another story here that I've tried to tell. You started talking about the ways in which Jewish primitivism helps us to understand a broad set of issues. You know, the ways in which you, know, you talk about primitivism as something that's often looked at through the lens of art history, right? Well, we need to see art history as political, right? You know, and Jewish primitivism shows us how primitivism is not just about aesthetics, but it's about politics, right? In what ways does the history of Jewish primitivism and the way that you engage with it, why does it matter? What is it that we take away from it in the most biggest picture terms? Well, I feel that in the study of 20th century European Jewish culture, sometimes we put the cart before the horse. Politics is so important, right? For so many obvious reasons in the first half of the 20th century. It bears reminding that other important things uh, include art, and not just to say that, oh, yes, you know, in addition to being consumed by political developments as, you know, subjects of, of history and uh, as actors in history, they also liked art. But that for many of these people, the production of art was the prompt and the medium for political engagement and was the opportunity for the development of ideas that we very commonly discuss as being played out. In, in, you know, the sort of um, grand political history of, of the 20th century. So to bring art back into the discussion, to bring aesthetics back into the discussion, to show that uh, in the discussion of art and aesthetics, we're not talking about two things that sometimes mirrored each other, but one thing that is working through the same, the same story, through the same narrative, that the artistic and aesthetic questions that many of these figures are dealing with are fundamentally one and the same and have profound consequences for the political questions that are also consuming them. So that's one reason I think it matters. Another reason I think it matters is that it shows that paradox is an opportunity that can't quite be evaded, that disrupting a sort of narrative about the way a project, an aesthetic project might work like primitivism, doesn't necessarily mean that we no longer understand what came before, but it means that we open a new door to understanding a little bit more. So I think and I hope that what I've contributed here is a new chapter, in a way, in our understanding of European modernism as an aesthetic and as a political project. And even if that means simply having contributed a few analyses of texts in this light that haven't been discussed before, or maybe if I've managed to convince people that, oh, yes, Jewish primitivism needs to be a part of our discussion of primitivism more broadly, then that would be something that, that I'd be very satisfied with too. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm glad that you could join the podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Jason, for the invitation. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you for listening to our conversation today with Sam Spinner. 
I've linked to an excerpt from his book, Jewish Primitivism, in the show notes, and I hope that you'll check it out. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.